0: We were talking last Wednesday night about the end of the book of Philippians where Paul said to those Christians he's writing to back in Philippi those in Caesar's household greet you. And we did a whole sermon last week about how would Caesar's house, you know, what's the deal on that? Nero was the Caesar at the time, and he was an evil wicked man, and yet because of his faithfulness to God, Paul had been able to lead some of the members of Caesar's household to Christ. They had been saved. They had become part of the family of faith. And so the point last Wednesday night was that sometimes God does unusual things or special things in out-of-the-way, unusual places. And we saw that with those students last week. It was a beautiful thing. And I'm just grateful for them, grateful for you, and I just want to thank you for being here tonight. Now... As you know, we have been in Philippians for the last several months. In fact, tonight, this will be our last sermon on Philippians. This is the 15th Bible study we've had on the book of Philippians. And so I hope that you feel like you know more about Philippians than you did 15 weeks ago. If not, either I have failed or you have failed. Somebody has failed because we've spent almost four months working our way through the book of Philippians. Now, tonight, although we could have just ended it last week because we're technically finished with our study, I have always found it helpful in trying to learn Scripture or for that matter, trying to learn anything, not only to get, you know, like for the last 14 weeks, we have been looking at the trees. We've been in the details of all these chapters and all these verses. I think sometimes it's helpful to step back a few steps and look at the forest to get the big picture. I can remember when I was in Southwestern Seminary, and I used to go to the library all the time, of course, to study. And one night, I was coming down to the lobby area of that library, and I bumped into a pastor that some of you might recognize the name, named Dr. Joel Gregory. Joel Gregory pastored Travis Avenue Baptist in Fort Worth for years. He and my dad went through seminary together, pastored First Baptist Church in Dallas. He's now at Truett Seminary. He is largely regarded as one of the most intelligent pastors, a genius, I think, by anybody's standards. In fact, my dad has told the story how when they were going through seminary together, that one of their professors talked to another professor and said, I don't know this Joel Gregory but I think he must somehow have stolen a copy of the test. And they said, why do you say that? I said, because we've never, I've never seen any student give this thorough of answer. Who is this student? And he told him his name. Oh, no, he hasn't stolen anything. The guy's a genius. He was a genius at Baylor. He's a genius here. And uh, anyway, I bumped into him in the lobby of Southwestern Seminary Books, Library one night. And we were talking. And I, I was at that time trying to get a better feel for world history. I said, what is the best way to learn world history? You've got all these empires, the Egyptian Empire and and the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and all this. And I said, what is the best way to learn that? He said, John, you know one one of the best things you could do if you want to get a big picture of world history? He said, go, and he pointed, get you a good book on world history. And he said, don't bother to read the book just open it up to the table of contents and memorize that. And he said, if you can learn the table of contents, you'll get the big picture. Now, after you've gotten the picture, big picture, you can go back and get all the specifics. But without the big picture, the specifics will just be a muddy blur in your mind. And I never have forgotten that. I think sometimes with the Bible, we have to do that. Sometimes when it comes to studying the Word of God, we have to step back and say, okay, I've learned these verses, and I've learned this word in Greek or Hebrew, wherever it is, and I've got that, but somebody give me the big picture of what's going on. And so tonight, before we officially conclude our study of Philippians, that's what I want to try to do. I want to try to help us to have a better understanding of the book uh, as a whole. Of course it was a letter that Paul wrote. We call it a book in the Bible, and it is, it's both. But I think tonight what might be wise would be for us to spend a few minutes thinking about the background to this letter, and then for us to think about the book itself. And when we get to the part about the book, we'll kind of we'll open it, not yet, but we'll open our Bibles to Philippians. We'll step back And we'll try to get the big picture. And I'll show you some things that I think will be very helpful for you in doing that. And some, not tricks. I wouldn't call them tricks. But a mnemonic or some learning device. Some things that you can do very easily. So that when you leave here tonight, you will be able to say, you know, there are 20 or 20, let's just say 20 verses. My goal tonight is when you walk out that you would be able to say not only do I know where these 20 verses are, or approximately 20 verses in Philippians, I kind of know what they were saying. And I feel like I feel like if I had to, at the last minute on Sunday morning, if my connection group leader was sick, and I got called to teach the class, I could stand up in front of the class for 30 minutes and teach them about the book of Philippians. I think I could do that based on what we're about to do tonight. So tonight... If you're a big picture type person, you're going to like this, and I'm praying that it'll be a blessing. But before we get to the book, and then I want to give some basic lessons at the end, very quick on that. That's what's printed in your outline. But the beginning tonight, the background to this book. Now, we always say Paul was the author, and he was. And we say he wrote this when he was in a Roman prison, and that is exactly where he was. But the question is, how did Paul get into a Roman prison? In fact, sometimes you'll even hear somebody say, Paul wrote this letter during his first Roman imprisonment. Well, immediately that implies there were more than one, right? I mean, maybe there were two or three. How many times was he locked up in Rome? How did he get to Rome? And what's the difference between his first imprisonment and his second imprisonment? So, as we're studying the background, before we get into Philippians, I want us to trace the apostle Paul, and I'm not going to let us get bogged down here, but to trace how the apostle Paul got to Rome to begin with. So let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts. We have to go there. This is where we get the story of Paul's life. So we we get Paul's biography, really, in Acts. And then these letters that he wrote we should be able to go back and plug in, where, where was this letter written? When did Paul write this letter? So tonight we do that just with Philippians. In Acts chapter 9, let's look, first of all, beginning in, um, well, if you look at the first nine verses of Acts 9, that describes how Paul was saved, or how Paul came under the conviction of Jesus Christ. Here is Paul traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus, Syria. For what reason? So that he can take Christians in Syria, Jews who had become Christians, and bring them back to Jerusalem so that they could be persecuted because in Paul's mind, at this time, they're Christians, they're traitors, they're not being true to the true God. See, Paul at this time did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And on that Damascus road, Jesus appeared to him, a blinding light. Paul loses his vision. He's knocked to the ground. And he hears this voice from heaven, the voice of Jesus, saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, Saul may have thought, Saul was his name before he became Paul. He may have thought, I'm not persecuting you. And uh, I'm persecuting these people who follow you. And he said, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then Jesus said this to Paul. He said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was like a, a, a metal device with a sharp point that was used to prod animals back at that time. And so what Jesus was saying to Paul, he's saying, Paul, as you're traveling to Syria, you've already mistreated Jewish people in, or Christian people in Jerusalem. You're wanting to do the same to those who are in Syria. But, Paul, I see that something's happening in your heart. You're, it's like you're having to kick against the goad. You're being convicted that something's not right. And what's not right is you don't have a relationship with me. And so he fell into conviction. And he, he was taken into the city of Damascus. Sometime you'll hear somebody say, well, Saul was saved on the Damascus Road. Actually, he was not. He was convicted on the Damascus Road. He didn't actually get saved until he got into the city of Damascus. So that said, let's pick up in verse number 10. And we get the background here. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus for behold he is praying and so see Saul even before he was saved he was a seeker he was seeking after God he was misguided he was wrong in the way he was seeking God but he was nonetheless a seeker and what does the scripture say what did God say those who seek me will find me you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart and so now God is honoring Saul's search. He is speaking to Ananias. He's saying to Ananias, go to this place where Saul is. Tell him how to be saved. He needs to receive forgiveness of sins. And in verse number 12, Jesus said to Ananias, in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. In other words, Ananias saying, Jesus, I don't want to have to go and talk to this man. He's having Christians killed. That may be what he wants to do to me. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him, now watch this, how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And so, Jesus is saying to Ananias, I'm going to tell this man, after he gets saved, all the things that he's going to have to suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias, in verse 17, went his way entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, <laughs> the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. This is when he was saved. He places his faith in Christ here. And he arose and was baptized immediately. he was ba- Saul's was a small baptism. The only people that even saw him be baptized were Ananias, who would have baptized him, and the others who were his traveling companions, and maybe one or two more, but not many people were there when he was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And so now we have Saul is saved. I'm going to just refer to him now as the Apostle Paul, but we also have these words from Jesus. I'm going to show him... How much he must suffer for my name's sake. And so this whole idea of suffering that accompanies his conversion is an interesting thing to me. Now go to chapter number 20 because we're going to get clearer uh, instructions about how the suffering was going to manifest itself. And in chapter 20 beginning in verse 22. Now his name has been changed. Now he's the apostle Paul. And in verse 22 he says this to the Ephesian elders, he says this, he said, see now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. So now the, the message has come to Paul himself. You're going to suffer because of your relationship with me. And the next verse, Paul said, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So this whole idea of suffering now is, is clear to Paul. The Holy Spirit is telling him it's not going to be an easy journey. Now go to chapter 23. And in chapter number 23... Paul now is in Jerusalem, and he is a hated man by the Jewish people, because now he is preaching that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, which none of them believed. And he himself had not believed until this experience he had with Christ. And so when he's there, he's, he's being threatened, mistreated, uh, a bounty is out on his life. And in verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And so here's Jesus in Paul's night of agony and fear and and persecution, and Jesus appears to him, and he said, don't be afraid, Paul. I am with you, and I'm going to take care of you. Let me say this as an aside. One of the important, one of the main reasons we should read our Bible every day Sometime, like, for example, if today in your reading you read Acts 23, and maybe you're going through a difficulty in your life, and so you're reading here about what Paul's going through, and you come down here to that verse, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. It could be today that you read a verse like that, or even tonight as you're hearing me give this verse, that the Holy Spirit takes that, and that becomes God's word for you. Just like this was God's word for Paul 2,000 years ago in his dark night of the soul, this could be God's word for you tonight. And God says to you tonight, don't be afraid. And see the implication here when he says to Paul, as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. What was God saying? God was saying to Paul, I'm not finished with you. They're trying to kill you here. They're not going to kill you. You will not die in Jerusalem. You see, when Jesus said to Paul, you must bear witness for me in Rome... That was his way of saying, whatever they try on you in Jerusalem to kill you, it won't work because I'm telling you there's work for you to do in Rome. And so, that, that, like when I read my Bible, I'm looking for something like that. And that is how, God, that's how the Spirit of God can take the Word of God and apply it to the child of God at a specific time when you really need it. Now, in verse 12, you see why Paul needed this Word. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And so they said, we're not going to have another bite of food or another sip of water until this man is dead. Well, if we were to read all that chapter, what we find is Paul's nephew overheard all this. And Paul's nephew went to the commander of this garrison there in Jerusalem and said to the commander, there's a bounty on Paul's life. They they have taken a a vow that they will not eat or drink. I mean, really, Paul's nephew was used by God to save his life. It's why I always try to be nice to my nephew, because I never know when I might need him to come to my aid. Well, Paul's nephew came to his aid, and so the commander says to the nephew don't tell anybody about this conversation. Let's just keep this quiet. But the commander begins to devise a way to get Paul out of Dodge, out of Jerusalem where it's dangerous, and to send him north to Caesarea. Now look in verse 23. We won't read all of this, but he called, that is this commander, called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. That's in the middle of the night. And provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And so now a letter is written to Felix, um, you know, explaining about Paul. So Paul now has bodyguards, a lot of them. And they're taking him to Caesarea. So as we continue to read on and learn about how this whole thing worked out in his life. Look in verse, if I, give me just a minute to find my place here. Look in verses uh, 33, 33. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium, or we would say in Herod's headquarters. We call this Paul's Caesarean imprisonment. Paul now is in Caesarea. He was locked up in Jerusalem. They're about to kill him. But God said, I've got work for you to do in Rome. You're not going to die yet. Remember this. You are indestructible until God's work with you is done. You're immortal. You, you, somebody could, Your worst enemy couldn't kill you. Cancer could not kill you. Nothing could take you out. The child of God, living in the will of God, is indestructible until he's finished the work that God sent him to do. Indestructible. And that's what, that's what we're seeing here in the life of Paul. So now he's in Caesarea, but he's locked up again, and he is in this imprisonment. Now go to chapter 24. You're there almost. And look in verse 27. The last verse of chapter twenty-four, but after two years, Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. And so, evidently, Paul was in Caesarea for about two years, and he is in uh, he is in prison there. Now, in chapter twenty-five, he's on trial in in Caesarea, and yet, remember this: Paul was a Roman citizen; he was Jewish. But he was a Roman citizen. And so he had all the rights that the Romans had. And so he knew that as a Roman, he could appeal to Caesar to hear his case. And that's exactly what he did in verse 11. For if I'm an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there's nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. And then notice what Paul said. I appeal Caesar. Say that with me. I appeal to Caesar. Now, when a Roman citizen said to a magistrate, I appeal to Caesar, that magistrate had no choice but to let that criminal, that accused person, go to Caesar. So, in verse 12, Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, you will go. Now, here's the question. Where was Caesar? Caesar was in Rome. And so now, Paul is about to begin a journey from Caesarea by ship to Rome, and the remainder of the book of Acts is largely about that. Now, go to chapter 28, and we come to verse 16. I'm giving you the cliff notes of this, fast, you know, fast version here, but in chapter 28, verse 16, just notice the beginning words, now when we came to Rome. And so now, Paul has made it to Rome, but he's still under arrest. He is waiting to appeal to Caesar, but he's still under, uh, he's under the authority, he's under arrest. And in verse 30 and 31, at the end of the chapter, the end of the book, notice what it says. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him. So he's under arrest, but it's kind of a house arrest. It's a loose arrest. It's He's not behind bars like you would think of a a prison today. He's in some kind of a house that that he's even having to pay for, but people are allowed to come to him. And in verse 31, it says, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And so here he is. This is Paul's first Roman imprisonment. And it is believed almost universally by theologians, that it was during these two years that he wrote what we know as the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. As, as you study the end of the book of Acts and you see that journey he made by sea in that ship from Caesarea to Rome and the the shipwreck, and they all thought they were going to die out there. The ship's breaking apart. And yet, what had Jesus said to Paul back in Jerusalem? Paul, as you have borne witness to me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness to me in Rome. And even on the ship, uh, Jesus appears to Paul again, and he says, you're not going to die, Paul. You and everybody on this ship is going to make it to where you need to get. See, the reason that Paul didn't drown at sea is because he hadn't gotten to Rome yet, and he hadn't finished what God had called him to do. I'll tell you another reason. You can say the same thing a different way. Do you know why God didn't let Paul drown at sea or be killed out there at sea, all, all those terrible experiences he was having out there? Because on board of that ship was Ephesians, not yet written, Philippians, not yet written, Colossians, and Philemon. And Jesus is saying, if Paul drowns at sea, those letters will never be written. And so he got him safely to where he needed to be. And, uh, and this is his first Roman imprisonment. And it was here, kind of an e- what we might call an easier imprisonment, that he wrote the prison epistles. You say, well, John, what about his next Roman imprisonment? Well, go to, chapter, go to 2 Timothy chapter number 4. I think this is important that we understand this. After those two years that Paul was under house arrest in Rome, evidently he was released. He was released. And he's in Rome now, and he's preaching, and he's ministering, he's serving the Lord, and he's helping people. And then at some point, he is rearrested, and he is locked up in Rome for a second time. But this imprisonment is altogether different from his first imprisonment. In fact, in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy is the letter that he wrote from this imprisonment. And in verse number 6, he says this, "...for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith." Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so in 2 Timothy, he's locked up. He's in prison. And yet he knew that his time on earth was coming to an end. Now that said, go back to Philippians, or go to Philippians chapter number 1, I want to just show you one thing to tie into that, to show you the difference between Paul's mindset during his first imprisonment and his second imprisonment. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, this is our great verse. He said, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, Paul knew that upon his death, he would be immediately in the presence of Jesus. And he said, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But in verse 24, he said, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for all your progress and joy of faith. And so in Philippians, he's saying, I'm going to keep on living so I can minister to you. I'd rather go to heaven, but I'm going to stay down here so I can keep being used of God to be a blessing to you. But in 2 Timothy, he's not saying that. He said, I'm poured, being poured out as a drink offering. <laughs> the time of my departure is at hand. And so these are two different imprisonments. And it's during that first imprisonment that Paul wrote this letter to Philippians. Now, you still with me? Say amen. So that's the, back, that's the background. and that's a little bit heavier or more academic, but that is the background. His Caesarean, his Jerusalem imprisonment, his Caesarean imprisonment, his first Roman imprisonment, his second Roman imprisonment. And it's, again, during that first Roman imprisonment that he wrote the prison epistles. Now, go to, you're in Philippians, and I want you just to look at this and just take your hands and just turn, and you see four chapters in this, in this little letter, four chapters. Now, I don't know how your Bible is. I don't know if you have a Bible. And a couple of years ago when my dad and I did the study on those Bible translations and even wrote the booklet about about the Bible, one of the things we brought out was that when you go to the bookstore to buy a Bible, not only do you get to choose whatever translation you want to buy, but you also get to choose if you want... Well, you don't always get this choice depending on the translation. If you want a Bible... That has a verse by verse layout where, like, it's in the left margin, verse one, you just see a one, two, three, four, five. Or if you want what's called a paragraph style Bible, you say, which is better? Well, they both have their advantages. The paragraph style is better for reading because that's how we read. The newspaper, or we read a book, it's in paragraph form. The original manuscripts were written in paragraph form. We know that because the oldest manuscripts we have are all in paragraph form. But when you're teaching, when you're preaching, or maybe even when you're trying to memorize Scripture, there are some advantages, even though sometimes it can make for a bumpy read, to having that verse-by-verse layout on the page. Here's what it does, like the Bible I have, and I know you can't see it where you are. But this Bible is the verse-by-verse. Verse. And so typically, like in my, when I do my Bible reading, I have three different Bibles I read from on most days. Christian Standard, two different New King James. But on the Old Testament, I prefer to read the paragraph form because it's just easier to understand. It, it aids comprehension, actually. But when I read the Psalms and when I read the New Testament, I, I actually prefer, and Psalms would always be this way, but the New Testament wouldn't. I prefer the verse-by-verse because it's technical and it's precise. And when I finish reading it, and I read a chapter, and I underline and highlight, in my mind, I can go back and see the key verses of that chapter more easily. So that's what I want us to take just a moment tonight, and this this won't take long. But let's just begin in chapter number one. Whether you have a verse-by-verse Bible or more of you probably have the paragraph form. and either Both are great. But as we look at chapter 1, if you are a Bible underliner, or if you like to circle the verse numbers, I would encourage you to circle these numbers in your Bible. Verse number 3, verse number 6, verse number 12, verse number 21, verse number 27, and verse number 29 those are the key verses in, in chapter number one. If they're all good. I'm just saying those are the key verses in, in Philippians chapter number one. And so, for example, if, if I was going to teach a class on Sunday, I'm in your connection group, your teacher got sick, I get called at 8.30, John, can you teach the class? We're going through. We're doing Philippians chapter one. Yes, I can teach the class. But the way I would teach that, I wouldn't give all the background I just gave here. I would dive right in to those verses. Now, I'm going to resist the temptation to read all that because that would just send me off preaching sermons on all that, and we've already had that. But I'm telling you, those are the verses. Like, when you read your Bible, it's not for me to tell you how to read the Bible. That's between you and God. Maybe you could, I'm sure, tell me some ways I could do it better. But what I like to do when I read the Bible, I'll read Philippians 1 with a pencil. I always use a pencil, not a pen, when I'm in scripture. But I'm going to underline the key verses or phrases or words and circle the verse number that's underlined. And then after I read the chapter, I go back and read what I underlined. So it takes a little longer. But the underlined part is the most, key, the most important part. And then what I would try to do after having read what I underlined would be to say, okay, of all those verses, like here, these verses I just gave you that I have underlined and circled, of all that, what... Which one of those verses, one of those phrases, one of those thoughts can I take with me today? then times when I've read Philippians chapter 1, and for example, the verse that would have spoken to me the most at that season of my life would have been verse 12. I love verse 12. Paul said, the things that happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And there have been times I've read that and I said, now, God, here's what I'm going through. And I'm praying, as was true in the case of the Apostle Paul, that you will take what I'm going through and somehow, some way, work it out in such a way so that more people will be saved. The gospel will be expanded. My faith will be stronger. Other people will be blessed. And a verse like that can be a tremendous encouragement. So that's what I encourage you. Read the chapter, underline the key parts, go back and read the underlinings again, and then say, what is the one thought I could take with me into this day? What is the one thought? That's why in your Bible reading, you don't want to read too much. Because if you read 10 chapters, you have mental overload. But you get that one thought. And also, you can see in your mind when you have your Bible closed, verse 3, verse 6, verse 12, verse 21 27, 29. So those are the key verses in verse 2 in chapter 2. Rather, let me just give you the verses to circle. And these are the verses that you would want to be familiar with. You can go home tonight and just read these verses that you're circling and you would say, "Well, I feel like I've got this down better." Verse 3, verse 5, verse 12, verse 14. Interestingly, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, that says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. James Brown of CBS Sports, who has spoken here several times and hopefully will be back in the spring, that is his life verse. Let each esteem others better than himself. And that's what he tries to do, to always ask not to, tell you all the things he's doing, but ask about your life. Let's go to chapter 3. Let me give you the key verses. Verses 8 through 10. That's a cluster of three, but they go together. Verses 13 and 14. Verse 20. Those are the money verses. Those are the key verses. They're all the Word of God, but those are the key verses that you would want to really be familiar with. And then in chapter 4, verses 5 through 9. That's the passage that deals largely with anxiety. That's the most Read pa- the most studies tell us that is the most underlined passage of scripture in all the Bible, verse eleven about contentment, verse thirteen I can do all things through Christ who strengthens, verse nineteen God will supply all of our needs. So again, verses five through nine, verse eleven, verse thirteen, and verse nineteen. So if you circle those numbers, read those, and just you don't have to even memorize it. Be good if you did, but just familiarize yourself with that and say okay. That is the cliff notes. That is the, that is the meat. If we're in a university class, on a Bible class, or a seminary class, and we're being taught Philippians, when, we get, when it comes time to learn, you know, what, what, where is this verse? What does this verse say? I'm telling you, those are the verses that you would want to know. And now, as we come to the close, the basic lessons, the life lessons that we learn from the book of Philippians. You still with me? Say amen. Say barely, barely, but still, barely, but still, I want to just mention these because as I have thought about the background that led Paul to write this letter in prison, almost having been killed, um, as I've thought about the content of the letter, I think these, four, these are four great, great basic life lessons. Number one, sometimes life doesn't turn out like we thought it would. And I would imagine there's not a person here tonight who wouldn't be able to say, who couldn't agree with that statement. Sometimes things happen in life that we thought never would have happened. Sometimes we go through things in life. I've I've called a man today. We're trying to hire a new high school minister. And when we were on this project seven years ago, I called a man in McKinney, Texas. First Baptist Church, McKinney. Sharp guy. I thought, man, if we could get him in Pasadena. We'd be, we'd be cooking with oil if we could do that. But it wasn't God's will for him to come, and he stayed where he was. And, but I never have taken his name and his wife's name out of my phone. And so today I called him, and he's in, he's in New Braunfels now. I didn't know where I was. I hadn't talked to him in seven years. And he's working on staff for one of, my dad's best, one of my dad's best friend church there. It's a big old church. And I said, when I found that out, I thought, well, we can't hire him out from underneath him. You know, so this... But I knew that this man I was talking to had had brain surgery in the last seven years. And I said, hey, I kept up with you a little bit, and I did see that you had some serious brain surgery. And he said, John, let me tell you what happened. And he told me he was born with a cluster of some veins in his brain that were clustered together, and it caused him to have a seizure a few years ago. And he had to have surgery to remove that cluster it left some scar tissue. He's had one or two seizures since. But he's just telling me, he said, I haven't had a seizure in the last two years. He said, I'm not in student ministry anymore. He told me what he's doing at that church. But as we were just talking today, I thought, now you know, when I talked to him last time, he never would have dreamed that he was going to be having brain surgery. This guy's 10, 15 years younger than I am. And so the point I'm making tonight is is true some paul all the things he went through first thing jesus said to in i'm gonna tell paul all the things he's gonna have to suffer for my name's sake well he went through some things he never would have dreamed that he would have gone through and sometimes life uh you know the application of this is endless but sometimes life just doesn't turn out like we thought it would number two joy is available in every situation And that is the theme of this little letter to the Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. He uses that word joy over and over. Rejoice over and over. And he's in prison. Joy is the theme. Oswald Chambers said, there's no circumstance of life in which we cannot abide in Christ. No matter what we're going through, in a prison, lost at sea, in a shipwreck, a bounty on our lives, abandon. Paul said in 2 Timothy, no one stood with me. When I needed them the most, no one stood with me. This one forsook me to go here. This one went there. But Paul said this, but the Lord stood with me. He was with me. See, what was Paul doing? He was abiding in Jesus. Why? Because Oswald's right. There's no circumstance of life in which we cannot abide in Jesus. Listen, joy... Is always possible because Jesus is always present. But if we're not abiding in him, focusing on him, we're just out there at sea and the ship of our life is being tossed to and fro, the peace and the joy can go out the window pretty quickly. But if we keep our focus on him, the peace is there and the joy is overflowing and joy is always available in in, in every situation. Lesson number three. There's always an opportunity to honor and serve the Lord. Wherever you are, Paul's in prison. He's honoring God. He's trusting God. And he's serving the Lord. Even in prison, even in illness, Paul honored the Lord. And then number four, a heavenly perspective helps us to endure the difficulties of life. Paul had that. He said again in Philippians 1, I can't tell if I'm going to live or die. Part of me would rather go be with Jesus. Part of me would rather stay here with you. I'm not sure, then I think I'll stay. I probably stay so I can serve the Lord here. But Paul knew this, his suffering was only temporary. It was only a matter of time till his soul slipped out of his body and went to be with Jesus in heaven. You know, I think there's something about that heavenly perspective that helps us through the hard times of life. On Monday of this week, I was in the dentist office for my six-month cleaning. Every six months, you're supposed to go to the dentist. I always hope I only have to go every six months. But I was in there, and this lady was cleaning my teeth, and she was doing a good job. But you know kind of how it is when they're cleaning your teeth, and it's scraping that noise. And it kind of just sounds like fingernails on a chalkboard. She's just scraping away. And, uh, you know, everything's fine. All just normal day at the dentist. Well, she's a Christian lady. And she had her radio on a Christian station. And there was just Christian music playing in the background. She's just cleaning my teeth, and, and I'm just listening to that music while I'm listening to that little screeching sound, you know, that she's making. And the song came on the radio, I'll Fly Away. Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. And i got to be honest with you. I thought, God, I would like to fly away right now <laughs> while she's scraping on my teeth like that. And I did, they played all the verses, and it was good, and she got finished, and and I told her that. I said, you know, a few songs back, they were playing I'll Fly Away. And I said, you're great at what you do, and you did a wonderful job. But I said, i got to be honest with you. I wanted to fly away right out of that chair when you were scraping on my teeth. But I've thought about that since Wednesday. Sometimes in life, when we're going through something hard, there's something about being reminded that one of these days, we're going to fly away and be with Jesus. That the sufferings that we experience here are only temporary. And they'll not last forever. My dad mentioned earlier that Claudia Atwood went to be with the Lord yesterday. And it was a shock to all of us. And I had just seen Claudia in her house about two weeks ago. And, and um, had a tremendous visit with her. And just, I always enjoyed talking to Claudia. And about halfway through the visit, she kind of brought up all the health issues. She had an aneurysm in her brain. She had had cancer that they thought was gone. It, uh, it came back and just spread all over her body. I mean, she just had everything going wrong. And she just was telling me, she said, you know, John, I've got everything, so many things going wrong with me. I don't see any way they can ever get it all fixed. She told me when she got saved. Told me when she got baptized. Told me, you know, how much she loved the Lord and how much she... And, she just, and then she started talking about death. And she said some things. I won't say it tonight. It would probably be too personal. But she even said some things about her own death where she was, was kind of laughing. She's just smiling, thinking about it. No fear. no. And I thought, you know, that's how it should be for the child of God. When we look at it, not only to our death, but into the future, we should say, you know what? Whatever happens, God's going to get me to my Rome. I'm not going to die till I get there. And after I've done what God wanted me to do in Rome, you know what? He's going to take me to be with him in heaven. And so whether I'm in Jerusalem or in Caesarea or in Rome or wherever I am or whatever's going on in my life, If I'll just focus on Jesus, I can have that peace and joy, and I can finish the task that God has given me to do. Amen? Father, I thank you for old Paul and for his faithfulness to you, not only in that Roman prison, but on his way there, and after he left there, and then when he got locked up again, and for his tremendous example. Help us, God, as we leave here tonight to feel like that we really understand the background and we understand the book. We got the key verses But more importantly, help us to take these basic lessons that no matter where we are or what we're going through, joy is available right there. Circumstances don't have to change because circumstances may never change. And if we put our eggs in that basket, we may be disappointed, but we'll sure be frustrated in the short term. We'll be sitting around waiting on our circumstances to change. But if we can get to the point where Paul was, where he can say, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. It doesn't matter if I'm in a ship at sea or if I'm in a prison or in house arrest or chained up. It really doesn't matter because my joy doesn't come from smooth sailing or from the absence of chains. My joy comes from the presence of Jesus. I will tell you this. It is easier to preach this and teach this than it is to live it tonight I'm up here talking about Paul but how about when it's John or how about when it's you well it's not quite as easy would you ask God tonight to help you to focus on him to trust in him affirm tonight your faith in Jesus Jesus I trust you here and now help me to honor you where I am to serve you here And God, even if I can't do all that I wish I could do, help me to do all I can do. Help me to be faithful here with heads bowed and eyes closed. Some tonight, you need to be saved in this service, just like those were last week and just like those were on Sunday. If you have never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, tonight, I need you with me in this ship, in this imprisonment that I'm in. I need you here with me. I'm sorry for my sins. Forgive me and help me to change. Come into my life. Make me a Christian. I ask you to save me and I trust you to do it.